Hey guys, Danny here, Editorial Director of Courier, the magazine all about working better and living smarter. If you've been reading Courier or listening to our podcasts over the past half year, you'll know it's incredibly tough to run a small business right now. And if you own one yourself, you know it firsthand. You've had to think on your feet, adapt really quickly, and sometimes you've had to pivot the whole thing just to stay afloat. And by doing all of that, you're bound to have learned a ton of lessons. This podcast, Looking Up, is a brand new six-part series that shines a light on some of those business stories right here in the UK. Across six weeks, six episodes, and six cities, we're catching up with small business owners across Britain. Those are going against the odds, getting clever with new ideas, supporting their local community, and sometimes even growing in big ways. Looking Up is created in partnership with Instagram, which builds products and features to promote small businesses and help them grow in tough times. Right, and with that, let's get into it. Today we're kicking it all off in London. So today I'm joined for episode one by Courier's Amira Jiwa. How are you doing, Amira? Hey, Danny. I'm good. So, I mean, you guys probably know Amira as the co-host of one of our other podcasts, Workshop, where she and Duncan dissect all of the concepts and terms and nitty-gritty of how you actually go about setting up and growing a new business. But Amira, today, you know, for the first episode of Looking Up, we're in London and we're catching up with two businesses which really did quite big pivots to the social enterprise space during the pandemic. One's a food company, Zoe's Gone a Kitchen, that pivoted into a community kitchen. And the other are two friends, one who ran a knitwear company and the other a creative director who launched a hand sanitizer brand that's doing good things for their local community. And I know, Amir, you've been doing a lot of research into the social enterprise sector here in London. What did you find about the sector? Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's really helpful to kind of explain what a social enterprise is. And it's not necessarily, you know, a legal classification for a company. It's more just a business uh, that is built in some impact, whether it's social impact or environmental impact into their business model. So it's a little bit different than a nonprofit, which is set up expressly just to do good with kind of no consideration for the profit side. Uh, Social enterprises have profit and kind of impact going hand in hand. Yeah. And and London, for many reasons, happens to be one of the kind of leading places in the UK for that. Probably not surprising because it's the capital, but there's some other reasons too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So London has more social enterprises than kind of anywhere else in the country. I think it makes sense for a few reasons. One is that London is also one of the most unequal places in the country. So I think there's a lot of very visible kind of opportunities to make an impact and needs to solve kind of social problems as well. And and people kind of want to get in on that and help out. Actually, three of our boroughs, so Croydon, Hackney and Greenwich, are actually registered social enterprise places. So that means that the local councils themselves have really committed to fostering and supporting social enterprise as well. And hopefully more boroughs will follow. And I know 29% of social enterprises in the capital are led by people who are from ethnically diverse backgrounds as well, compared to quite a lower tally nationally. Yeah, so the number nationally is about 13%. So 29% um, is a lot higher. I think, you know, there's always even more progress that can be made in that capacity. But it's a great start to know that, you know, it's a really diverse and representative group of people that are driving this kind of change in, in London. Cool. Amira, we'll catch up again in just a bit. Sounds great. So first up today is the story of Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, a London-based food business founded by Zoe Ajinya back in 2010. Zoe founded the company almost accidentally. It was born out of her passion for food, even if she never really intended to have a career in the industry. She wanted to be a writer. But Zoe grew the brand from its market stall origins into a very modern food company. 
She hosted supper clubs, she did pop-ups, she grew a hugely loyal following, wrote a super popular cookbook, and always stayed nimble, spotting new opportunities to grow. And when lockdown hit, Zoe lost almost all of her booked events. They got canceled. But what she's done since then has only proven just how nimble the company has actually become. It's worth starting Zoe's story though, back at the beginning. The first point I should probably make is that I didn't intend to set up a catering company or a restaurant or a food business, none whatsoever. I'm the daughter of two immigrants, right? So Irish Ghanaian immigrants who were very much connected to home through food growing up. One of the things I noticed very early on as a child was how important food was outside of just eating dinner around the table, right? So we didn't have any Ghanaian family in London and I wasn't part of any Ghanaian community, so to speak. So there was this other side of my identity that was really kind of lost and unfamiliar and, you know, I had this huge curiosity about it. So there we are. So there's my dad who's also in and out of my childhood, not necessarily there consistently. But when he was there, there always seemed to be food. And that food was very different to obviously the other kinds of food in the house or food that was coming from Ireland. So it was things like kenke, smoked fishes, smoked tilapia, you know, kubi, these dried salted fishes, shito, traditional hot pepper sauces. So these amazing pungent smells. And it just really piqued my curiosity. And the fact that he only would initially wanted to cook for himself, you know, it was a very insular process for him. I got a sense that that was a relationship that he was taking to go home through the food. And so, of course, I wanted to be part of that action, but he wasn't very forthcoming and like, <laughs> you know, share, share. So it was more about me kind of prodding and poking in and just being present and standing there while he was cooking. But anyway, that's what piqued my interest in the food from Ghana. And I spent, you know, it was a, a love affair, I guess, that I didn't stop. In 2010, Zoe had just got back from traveling around the States. At the time, she was living in a big warehouse in East London in Hackney Wick, which she says was a desolate landscape back then. But there was a big arts festival going on one weekend with thousands of people pouring in. And because she spent almost all of her savings on her traveling, she needed to make back some money. So suddenly her skill in cooking food from Ghana came to mind. So I thought, hmm, why don't I make some food outside the front door? I can't be in my house. So this is what I did. I got a friend to make a sign making Zoe's famous peanut butter stew, only famous to them and myself, obviously. But you know, that's how marketing works. Before you knew it, there was like a queue around the block. There was just basically a party outside my front door. And the dish I'd cooked was peanut butter stew, which is my childhood name for Enkatsenkwan, which is groundnut soup which is a very ubiquitous dish around West Africa. And the smell from that dish is incredible. So that alone just drew people in. And people were asking about the food, where it was from. You know, questions I hadn't anticipated, actually. You know, I thought I was just going to serve food. And it turned into me being the cook and the educator and the marketing liaison for Ghana, <laughs> essentially. And lots of people didn't know where Ghana was. Like, people hadn't heard of it. And I was like, huh? This is crazy. That weekend was a huge amount of fun. And people wanted me to do that again, but I had no interest in doing that again. You know, it was kind of one-off. But I said, well, you know, I'll think about it. If I ever do it again, I'll let you know. Well, lo and behold, fast forward a year and Zoe did it again. This time to an even bigger audience who ate it up. After a stint in Berlin, where she hosted other supper clubs and which got picked up in a big way in the local press, it was becoming pretty clear to Zoe that she had a real business on her hands, even if she didn't call it that herself. But she had to think hard about what gap she was actually filling and whether or not she was the one to be plugging that gap. 
So that is when I kind of thought about, you know, why these people weren't going to the hundreds of locations in London that already served this food or, you know, why didn't people know about Ghana? And in fact, you know, why wasn't African food more popular generally? So it created all of that stuff for me to answer. And I decided, right, OK, so the mission is simple. We just need to educate people that this stuff is great. And the mission statement became bring African food to the masses, you know. So I just set about then in every conceivable version of food service you can think of trying to do that. So it was the supper clubs, it was the pop-ups, it was the kitchen residencies. Eventually led to me having a restaurant in Brixton for a couple of years and then obviously a cookbook. And that's where we are, really. (laughs) Just about a year ago, Zoe ended up in hospital for 10 days. They thought it was meningitis, but the culprit was overwork and exhaustion. But her stay there gave her precious time to think about what she was actually doing with the business. And she admits she felt a bit lost. When Zoe got out of hospital, she took some time off on a sabbatical and moved to New York until this past February to bathe in the hospitality and food industry in the States and connect with some others. But it gave her even more space and time to reconsider what she actually wanted Ghana Kitchen to be and do. Zoe says she was stretched way too thin and not serving her customers or herself well enough. So she decided to pivot away from doing so many physical events where she felt almost as if she had to be in four different parts of the country at the same time. And instead, she decided to focus on launching an online shop, which would come in handy when COVID would hit not too long after. But the fact is this year should have been Zoe's biggest one ever in terms of business. She had big clients and big gigs booked up, which COVID screwed up like it has with so many countless businesses everywhere around the world. And yes, very quickly in the course of a week, you know, well, the domino effect was it all disappeared. And, you know, for about a week, at least, probably, I was kind of in like, should I have a meltdown? I'm not sure what to do. So, you know, there's a lot of confusion and frustration, especially because I knew I was going to be ineligible for any government help just because of the nature of my business. And it's a micro business. And we always fall through the gaps in these kind of generic funding attempts and things like that. And I didn't have a business premises, so I couldn't get the business rates thing. You know, all, all of the things I couldn't get, whatever. So then I had to think about, well, how am I going to survive the next few months, right? And all I could think about at the time was just think about the next few months. Like, don't worry about the long term. Well, one of the moves she decided to make was to launch a community kitchen and a crowdfunding campaign to help support it in order to help out those in need. She ended up raising more than £14,000. It just kind of inspired something in me where I thought, okay, well, probably what I should do is help where I can. And what's the best way to do that is to feed people. And then the idea of a community kitchen basically came very quickly to me. And honestly, I felt a bit conflicted about it because A, it was a way to help me, you know, obviously pay the rent for the kitchen and all that and survive minimally as a business or at least get me through the next three months but in a bigger sense you know it was about obviously helping the most vulnerable people in the community near me as best I could in the best way that I could and also try and salvage jobs for some people if I could or whatever I had to make myself really vulnerable by (laughs) that's what a crowdfunder does isn't it because you're just basically asking people to help you and that's not something traditionally I've been very good at initially the crowdfunder was raised because I thought okay doing rough numbers in the the bare bones of a kitchen how many meals could I probably do and it was like I could do 150 meals a week easily so that's what we raised it for I ended up doing 500 meals a week because we also started servicing the NHS and care homes and things like that so yeah we did really well and yeah it was great to be connected and to feel like you're doing something helpful to other people but also still in a way to keep that mission alive because you know of course there were certain groups that we were connected to that were 
for the majority of really white elderly people who probably West African food wasn't their first choice on the menu. But it was received really, really well. And there was only a few times that we had to like tone down this or that. But I was happy to, to accommodate. Today, Zoe has carved out a fresh proposition for Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. Unable to host events like supper clubs in person, she's decided to sell African ingredients on her web shop. Everything from alligator pepper and moringa powder to okra salt, and including it with a dose of education. It's all around this idea of essentially educating people on how healthy and nutritious these ingredients are, but also trying to remove some of the white gaze from the whole thing in terms of how you eat, how you cook, how you write recipes and you know, where you're allowed to use these ingredients and stuff like that. Just to, to have a reframing of what does healthy, nutritious, exciting food look like and ingredients look like. So Zoe's Garner Kitchen at the moment, as I say, I started Garner Kitchen with a 20 quid in my back pocket and I've never had investment. I've never had big loans to do that. So it's still that kind of business. It's still bootstrapped. And luckily I have a wife who's very multi-talented. <laughs> so she helped redesign the site so that it looked like a shop. And I wanted it to be single origin stuff because the point was to return the wealth to Africa. So now I have direct relationships with farms in Nigeria and Ghana. So I source directly these spices and ingredients and I retail them on my website. So the idea is that it will be an ecosystem of here's a recipe. There's no need for substitutions because you can buy these ingredients right here. And also here's the healthy benefits of these. And also this is the name you know it by, but actually it's called this you know so there's lots of different parts of education to go on and I still want people to like have fun interesting experimental diets right that incorporate these amazing flavors and ingredients but I just want them to understand some of the wider issues in the food industry that are going on. In the end it's being nimble and adaptable basically being unable to be labeled something defined like a restaurant in air quotes that's enabled Zoe to adapt when time gets tough. She says her whole career has prepared her for a moment like this. You know, I've worked in PR, I've worked in marketing, I've worked in TV, I've run several companies myself before. You know, I've done journalism, I've, done, I've, done, I've had so many jobs. <laughs> and it seems like the universe gave me all of those jobs just so that I could do this particular thing that I do now. I didn't realise that 10 years ago, but I'd, I'd been given the gifts of all the things I needed, right? And I always wanted to keep Ghana Kitchen fun and fluid and not just one thing. I mean, it's a brand at the end of the day, you know. It's a brand that can do catering. It's a brand that can do this, that, and X, Y, and Z. And it can be a restaurant if I want it to one day again. So, yeah, and I think that is kind of almost the new normal in terms of hospitality and food, is you just have to have a more than a business. I think you actually need a brand that can flex and adapt and do different things still serving the same people, but like with this awareness that nothing stays the same anymore, nothing lasts longer than 24 hours. Like that's our new reality, is like you just don't know what you're gonna wake up to. And that was Zoe Agenyal from Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. Coming up after the break, we'll find out how the founder of a knitwear company and the creative director of a design studio chose to use their manufacturing and branding chops to set up a hand sanitizer brand during lockdown. Stay tuned. Hi, it's Amira. I'm speaking with small business founders that used Instagram to thrive during lockdown. Here's Anushka and Kadima, co-founders of Nuka Nails, a nail salon in West London, on how they use consistent and creative content creation to grow their digital following while their physical salon was closed. 
we couldn't even leave our house. <laughs> so yes. Instagram was like the only way we could promote stuff. So in lockdown, me and Anushka were actually together. We had like a massive brief. So every single day, we was literally up in my room creating content, creating like the sickest nail design, just posting it on our Instagram, on our personal and on Nuka's. So we was driving a lot of traffic over to our page. We've created so much content through lockdown. And then we also started to teach masterclasses. And we said to people during the masterclass, once we've finished, please upload all of your progress through either stories or main feed posts and just tag us because we love to see everyone's progress and how they're developing their skills. How did all that content creation affect your Instagram following? So guys, we hit 10K in lockdown. We started lockdown on 6,000 and then we hit 10K. And as you know, when you hit 10K, you can use the swipe up feature. So we were selling our tickets on our stories and as a post on the feed. And we also collaborated through lockdown with Time Out London. We did a live on their Instagram. That Instagram live led to so much more. The BBC actually found us through that and then the BBC did a feature on us when nail salons could reopen, which was absolutely amazing. That was just mind blowing. And then I think just being consistent, putting up the sickest pictures, we managed to just grow so much, doing our masterclasses as well. More people started hearing about us. It was mad. And you actually invented a nail trend that went viral on Instagram, didn't it? We also started to create nail charms. We were creating them off the nail and then constructing them and putting them onto the nail. So Obviously, you've got your nail and then you have, we were making butterflies. We were making smiley faces to like hang off. So we were putting tiny little hooks through them and then drilling tiny little hooks onto our nail. And then like it literally hangs off. It's great for press or shoots. Obviously, we post our stuff on Nuka and on our personals and the pictures absolutely blew up. But one of my pictures from the tiny little Louis Vuitton bag actually hit one million impressions which is the craziest ever i've never had anything hit one million before and obviously we were posting this onto nuka as well and it got so many reshares i think it's an amazing feature as well when you can see the post reshares so how many people reshare your post to stories and we were getting thousands of reshares we were getting thousands of likes loads of comments and then nail artists were starting to recreate what we were creating and tagging us and showing us how they were doing it and the development, which was so nice. It made Instagram really feel like a community. And did all that activity on Instagram translate into more customers in, in real life when you're able to start doing nails again? When clients come into the salon, they have to fill out a consultation form. One of the questions is, how did you hear about us? And we get a lot of people that say from the BBC, from Time Out, from Instagram. That's where all our traffic comes from. Finally, do you have any advice for other small business owners looking to come up with creative content for Instagram? Yeah, just really pushing boundaries. I think that's the best thing. That's exactly what we did during lockdown by creating these charms. And we didn't know how to create a nail charm or what we were doing. We just sat down and tried it. And I mean, Instagram just went crazy for these nail charms. So that was us really putting ourselves out of our comfort zone. Next up, from Hackney in East London to Peckham in South London. When the pandemic made finding hand sanitizer almost impossible here in London, and pretty much everywhere else in the world, the founders of knitwear company Country of Origin and the creative director of design agency Aya Studio turned an industrial space in Peckham into a hand sanitizer factory. 
They focused on hiring those who found themselves out of work because of the crisis, and they donated products to organizations in need. Well, the company that they ended up building, called Hand, was set up in only a matter of weeks, and it's since grown into a self-sustaining business. Well, I'm with Ben Taylor from Country of Origin and Matt Cotis from iStudio right now. And I guess both, I'd like to know where you first met each other. As part of Country of Origin, we did a rebrand and we worked with iStudio to do that. So that was about 18 months ago. Yeah, about 18 months, yeah, yeah. We kind of did that and that went really well and it worked really well together. I mean, it was one of those projects where we just clicked worked really well together on it as our team sort of working together. And I think, you know, I think that showed in sort of the output that we did and relatively quick in terms of sort of branding of how we sort of created everything was because we had had a really good dialogue. So obviously that was stood us in good stead for what came next. And paint me a picture of back in April when you launched this thing, because how are both of your respective companies doing at that time? It's kind of hard to remember. It was half a year ago, but were you really like feeling the heat due to COVID? Yeah, well, we certainly were. I mean, it was kind of slap bang in the middle of wholesale sales season for Country of Origin. I remember getting a kind of quite a formal letter from our Italian sales agent saying that they'd closed the showroom. And this was just before the UK had really, it kind of really hit home. And even though it was kind of raging in Italy, we all sort of weirdly thought we'd still be okay in the UK. Obviously, that wasn't the case. (laughs) Uh, We saw it coming. That impacted our kind of wholesale sales. So we felt probably like we needed to act. You know, from Maya's point of view, I mean, it literally, I can remember standing out in the garden at home thinking, it's literally call after call. It's like things dropping off a cliff and, you know, projects that we had, we were just about to roll out brands that we've been working on, obviously put on hold, you know, one, because of, I guess, the uncertainty and two, because there's no one around to sort of action it or it was weird. And, you know, I'm sure we're not the only team to have felt that, but luckily we had a few things sort of going on that kept us going, but it was the quietest I've ever known it and we've been going for quite a few years. It was a shock, big time. What was the origin of the conversations of you guys coming up with this idea for a hand sanitizer brand? Were you just catching up one day over the phone and saying, hey, you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Let's do it. Or was it something a bit more gradual? Literally that. I mean, that's the email I got from Ben. We worked with the factory in Leicester, the knitwear factory, and we were looking at some way to kind of utilize that factory when we were expecting our orders to be cut quite significantly. That didn't really happen in the end because we kind of decided that factory... A lot of the guys there were over 60 and they didn't really want to do it, which is fair enough. I mean, it's quite an undertaking to just kind of change from knitwear to hand sanitizer. It's quite a pivot. (laughs) What what were they saying to you? Like, I have no idea. I don't have the skill to do that. We're not chemists. (laughs) We make knitwear. But you did try to kind of use the the resources you had to do it. That was the initial idea. Yeah. And that Uh, made sense, didn't it? I mean, you had the space. Yeah, we had the space and we had people there. But for one reason or another, that didn't work out. So I remember kind of... We were just discussing the idea and then we kind of just decided, oh, we should just do it ourselves anyway and make it more of a community project around Peckham. And that was at the time that we kind of started speaking to Matt and then it kind of snowballed into something much bigger than initially. It was just something to kind of get us over the hump of whatever this was. There were no financial stimulus packages announced at this time. We just kind of expected we were on our own. We didn't expect to kind of get the kind of government support schemes and all that. Yeah, so we just started talking to Matt and then it snowballed into a, a real thing rather than just a kind of harebrained idea. Paint me a picture of kind of, you know, back in April when you did launch, you know, nobody can find hand sanitizer anywhere they looked, right? I mean, it was, I remember going from like store to supermarket to corner shop. It was like you were looking for El Dorado gold or something like that. The most in-demand product on the planet, probably. So you guys said, 
hey, we could import this stuff, ethanol from somewhere? I mean, how did it all start? I was initially looking at the kind of how to do it. It probably in kind of February, March, early March time. One of the guys that works for this, Tom, he kind of managed to source an IBC of ethanol, which is a thousand liters of ethanol, which is a big gold <laughs> container of highly flammable liquid. Was that like flagged by customs or something as like some potentially bomb making material or something? It's a TDSA ethanol, so it's classed as the ethanol that is used for cosmetic or pharmaceutical use. We had to be completely registered to be able to buy it. You had to have certificates and all this stuff. So we sourced the stuff and then actually getting certified by the government to actually use it probably was another month down the line. But at the time, there was a big kind of thing about the government needs to cut all this red tape for people to be able to do it. And then finally, they did probably when we launched it, which was April time. So it took about a month from there to actually get everything sorted because there was a lot of dodgy hand sanitizer out there that you saw that you didn't know where it was from what the hell is actually inside of it yeah i think like anything like this people will try and exploit a crisis i think they probably did um yeah it was just kind of we had to do everything by the book from the off it happened pretty quickly i mean it felt like a long time at the time i mean we were up and running making hand sanitizer in about six weeks from conception which is pretty pretty quick <laughs> yeah so you imported all this ethanol you were up and running in a couple of weeks what were the actual steps of getting it i mean matt obviously you led this beautiful um branding process the visual identity is great how do you approach that because it's probably a really tricky thing to get that right to be both beautiful and playful but also serious right because it is a pandemic Exactly. And I think obviously one of those things as well is not meeting, initially not meeting up in person. So we were all kind of doing this remotely and none of us love being on Zoom. We worked together with some of our team. I think the idea of what we wanted to do is, I think the playfulness was something we really wanted to avoid, perhaps looking like a lot of other brands that were either being very highly sort of scientific or very, very beauty brands. So ours wanted to fit somewhere in that middle where the illustrations, the little icons were, were generally to try and kind of break this sort of like celebrating the art of washing your hands, which is kind of a bit goofy thinking of it now. But at the time, it seemed really important. Obviously, still is. But at that time, that was a really sort of nice sort of way we thought we could create a brand that could adapt really quickly. Because obviously, there's lots of hand gestures as well, we know. So we could sort of develop that as the sort of playful side. But I think matching that with sort of some muted colors initially and quite some sort of, I guess, medicine-inspired sort of type faces that you think might be on the back of, you know, a cream or something like that. So just making that feel a little bit more sort of solid in that way. We thought sort of created the nice, you know, not too gimmicky, but also had that sort of, you know, resonation of still being playful while being able to get over the idea that this is a serious product, fully tested product, and this is there to help. So help in terms of sort of the community and in terms of the keeping your hands clean. Right. And you mentioned the community aspect there, which which you touched on a bit previously, which is what you were attracted by. So you guys set up in an industrial space in Peckham in South London with the intention of helping, hiring people who need help basically and giving back some of the money, right? Yeah. So I mean, that's kind of the most important part of the project, really. It's a social enterprise. So certainly at the beginning, we were kind of as many kind of bottles as we were selling, we were also donating them to whoever needed them, food banks and charities. And at that time, obviously, they just couldn't get their hands on hand sanitizer. At that time, it was very important to donate product to those organizations. And that's kind of what we set up to be. It's like a kind of a luxury brand, but also then can just help those organizations in need by kicking it back to them. And that, again, I think is in the ethos of the branding. We're kind of continuing to do that. And we've employed people on the living wage. We want to try and build that as much as possible. 
we're still in that kind of phase of startup with this. We want to grow it further so we can employ as many people as we can. Really. Yeah, and, and how we scale that up is obviously, yeah, is something that now we can sort of work together a bit more at the moment. I know, you know, so it's just a bit easier to sort of see how we can do that. So the idea of scaling up in terms of the project side of it, the social aspects, needs to come from us being able to sell more products, basically. So yeah, that's where we're on at the moment. And then we can, that could help both ways. Yeah, and I do see it quite a lot of places around London. It's funny because did you guys see this as becoming a proper brand in and of itself so quickly because you both have your own projects and companies, right? I mean, you know, Ben, you're trying to grow a fast-growing knitwear brand and Matt, you know, you're creative director of a studio, yet here you are packing, you know, small bottles with ethanol. Did you foresee that this would be your, your life half a year after you started it? Gladly, we're not actually packing the bottles. Yeah, I've got the shakes. I can't be trusted. <laughs> no, well, obviously, you know, and there's a lot more hands-on and so I'm sort of managing that side of things. But no, I mean, I think because it's such a creative project as well, I think even though we're sort of, you know, we're partners in it, we're treating it like a studio project. So, you know, it's very much, I can look over there at the moment and I can see some new label prototypes on a box over the, you know what I mean? There's things around that we're constantly trying to, you know, look at new ways of presenting products and that to make it easy to understand the messaging or, you know, ways of sort of bundling product together so we can sort of, you know, do some initiatives on the lead up to Christmas, which is what our kind of main focus is now, really. We're launching a new initiative a new kind of product called the meal deal which is a kind of gift box with not only hand sanitizer but moisturizers and um, soaps in for every box that we sell we will donate a kind of a christmas meal to someone in need via food banks or the kind of food canteens that you get around christmas so that's going to be our kind of next big campaign that we're going for so we're kind of launching new products now and just trying to build the brand into something more than just hand sanitizer which is difficult, um, but it's good. And I think I think it's the brand so strong that it deserves to have a, a bigger product range. It's funny because, you know, the pandemic has been so terrible in, in so many ways. But I mean, as we've talked about at Courier for the past half year, just there's so many new opportunities, there's pivots that small businesses have done that will actually might even outlast the original business idea because now these have been battle hardened in the middle of a crisis so they might outlast the first one i mean do you think hand might outlast country of origin or aya i mean how that's kind of evolved already really is we sort of joined teams now and deptford is our base or the studio and the sort of day-to-day sort of managing Peckham is where we're producing. So we're kind of sort of thinking of, we're almost developing a hybrid sort of brand studio relationship that is actually focusing quite nicely across different sort of projects that we're developing around not just the hand sanitizer idea as well, because we feel that, you know, going forward, this might be things that other, you know, larger brands that maybe can't move as quick as some of our smaller guys can, that we've actually sort of building up an interesting proposition of how you can, like you say, be battle-hardened a bit and sort of, you know, on that day-to-day basis, we've slightly sort of restructuring, but it seems to be so far so good. What have you guys learned doing all of this the past couple months? For me, I think the value of social enterprise and the way that that can actually have an amazing impact on people in the community and how to do business effectively. And I think, especially now with so many people struggling that I think business should be compassionate and that as much as it can help other people, the better. And people respond to that in an incredible way. And that's why Hand has been such a success, I think, because people love the ethos and what we do. We don't just make hand sanitizer, we actually, we're doing some good at the same time. 
So Amir, we visited with one startup founder who launched a food company, pivoted about 70 million times, and somehow ended up in a really interesting place. And kind of a lesson that Zoe told us there was that, you know, there's no one way of, of running a food company. And actually, some of the most interesting food companies these days don't go along the typical path of just launching a restaurant, but instead, you know, they could duck and weave when things happen. They can launch supper clubs, they could launch a pop-up, they could have a cookbook, and they could launch an e-commerce ingredient store, as Zoe did, and also, of course, her community kitchen. And then we learned, you know, with Hand, that just because you make sweaters for a living and just because you're, you know, a creative director doesn't mean you can't import a bunch of ethanol and make hand sanitizer and give back to the community too, right? Yeah, I think, honestly, those are both such great examples of founders that have thought really carefully about what their skills are, what their business skills are and, and how they can leverage them for good as well. So um, hopefully lots that everyone listening can take away as well. Cool. Thanks, Amira. And that was episode one of Looking Up, and we were in our home base of London. Coming up next week, we head north to Manchester to see how businesses there have adapted and pivoted and what they've learned in the process. Looking Up is created in partnership with Instagram, which builds products and features to promote and support small businesses and to help them grow in tough times. And for more stories from Courier, head to couriermedia.co. I'm Danny Giacopelli. Looking Up is back next week.